from the School of International Service at American University in Washington, this is Big World, where we talk about something in the world that really matters. The eyes of the world have been focused on Ukraine since February of this year, when Russian aggression that began with the annexation of Crimea eight years ago escalated into a full-scale invasion into Ukraine. The loss of life and property has been enormous. The bright spots for those who support Ukraine have come in seeing the Ukrainian military mount an unexpectedly intransigent resistance, and the Ukrainian government successfully pull the levers of diplomacy to marshal nearly unlimited assistance from the West, both in the form of weaponry and aid. But while the world has monitored the war in Ukraine, other old disputes among former Soviet states have flared up. Azerbaijan and Armenia have renewed their enmity over the Karabakh-Nagorno region, and Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan have clashed along their undemarcated border in recent weeks. So today, we're talking about that area of the world known as Eurasia, specifically parts of it that used to be called by another name, the Soviet Union. I'm joined by Keith Darden. Keith is a professor here at the School of International Service. His areas of expertise include the politics of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. He's frequently featured in the media for his analysis of the area, and his forthcoming book is titled Resisting Occupation in Eurasia. Keith Darden, thanks for joining Big World. Hi, Kay. It's good to be with you again. Just to get us in the right place and time, the Soviet Union was, while it existed, the largest nation in the world in terms of land area. Following the collapse of the USSR in 1991, the Soviet states were divided into 15 independent nations. Keith, going back to the 90s, how were the borders of these nations determined? Who led the process? And what issues were or were not considered in setting up the borders of the countries in Eurasia as we know them today? So these borders were the internal republic borders of the Soviet Union. So they were kind of never intended to be international borders in a a real sense. Uh, They were just administrative units. So if you imagine if the United States broke up, um, you know, the border between Iowa and Nebraska, it's kind of arbitrary. Uh, And in general, the, the way in which those internal borders within the Soviet Union were crafted were somewhat related to kind of the demographics on the ground. In other words, mm-hmm. you tried to put Uzbeks in Uzbekistan uh, or put Ukrainians in Ukraine or Belarusians in Belarus. Uh, but much more of the process was actually trying to make Belarusians in the territory of the Belarusian Soviet Soviet Republic uh, and make Uzbeks in the territory of that republic. And so these were these were just uh, administrative units. And the agreement was that the Soviet Union, because it was a union of these union republics, when it dissolved, it would dissolve into those 15 union republics. Um, and there was a lot of international pressure at the time to choose this strategy. Uh, because if you recall, you know, 1989, the collapse of Yugoslavia and the effort to make those republic boundaries conform to the underlying identities of people on the ground led to a horrifying and bloody, uh, bloody war. And there was the hope that that could be avoided in the case of the Soviet Union. And so there was U.S. pressure, there was European pressure. Uh, and in general, it seemed like a good administrative solution if the Soviet Union no longer exists you know, its its former republics uh, should be independent states. 
And that does sound, it sounds good in theory, but we have tensions and clashes along the border between Ukraine and Russia. These are not a, a new occurrence. Uh, I mentioned the, the annexation of Crimea in 2014 is one of the most notable. Can you explain Russia's rationale for annexing Crimea in 2014 briefly? Sure. Um, you know, the, there were kind of two rationales. Uh, one rationale was that uh, what happened in, in uh, spring of 2014 or February of 2014 was that the elected leader of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, was overthrown. Uh, and the Russians viewed that as an illegitimate seizure of power. They called it a coup. Uh, and they believed that the people who came to power uh, were radical nationalists, uh, which they call Nazis, uh, and uh, that those those people would endanger the lives of the Russian-speaking population of Ukraine, uh, which was about half the population of Ukraine that had supported Viktor Yanukovych. And so uh, Crimea was the largest concentration of ethnic Russians, in other words, people who identified as Russian on the census. Um, And that's partly for historical reasons that Crimea had previously been part of the Russian Republic of the Soviet Union uh, prior to its transfer to Ukraine in the 1950s. And so Russia was saying, essentially, uh, these are endangered people. Uh, They have the right to self-determination. So Crimea voted for uh, secession uh, from the Ukrainian Ukrainian state, and Russia decided to to add them. That was one version, uh, but there was also uh, another narrative that came out then uh, that has become much more prominent now, which is that Crimea was never legitimately Ukrainian, that this was all historically Russian land. And so that you were kind of bringing Crimea back home uh, and that Crimea had been the historic seat of lots of important moments in the Russian Orthodox Church, and that there were deep ties to Crimea. And that more nationalist narrative of Crimea is Russia, um, having nothing to do with political changes in Ukraine or threatened populations, and more about sort of an irredentist model of we're going to incorporate all Russians under uh, under the Russian state. That was also there at the time. And so there were these two kind of competing narratives, neither of which were accepted by the international community. Right. That was, you know, that's the annexation. It was incredibly controversial, but there really was no intervention from from other countries. And it was allowed mostly to stand. And he opened the bridge in 2018 with big ceremony uh, linking Crimea to mainland Russia. Why, in your opinion, did Putin again, escalate tensions and invade Ukraine in February of this year? And was it at least in part because nothing substantive really happened to Russia when they annexed Crimea? So I don't think it's that nothing happened to Russia when they annexed Crimea, uh, because we did impose sanctions then. But you're right in the sense that at the time, there was more of a, an under, even if no one accepted the Russian logic for the annexation of Crimea, I think most people kind of recognize that the population of Crimea, uh, even if the referendum uh, was not legitimate, kind of did favor uh, joining Russia at that time. And so there was a kind of sense that, yeah, self-determination is a bad idea, but 
if we had really exercised self-determination, Crimea probably would have uh, would have joined Russia. And so there was a there was kind of an acceptance uh, that this was not going to be this was not as bad an outcome as we saw this this year, for example. And so I think that the Russian rationale uh, for escalating was the failure to resolve that 2014 conflict. So part of what happened is that as a result of uh, uh, the secession of the Donbass, not Crimea, uh, in 2014 and the ensuing war, um, Russia intervened then uh, and uh, successfully uh, defeated the Ukrainian military in a couple of different engagements that led to the Minsk Accords. And the Minsk Accords called for constitutional change in Ukraine, the reincorporation of the Donbass, but kind of a creation of a almost a confederal Ukraine, where different regions would have a veto over Ukraine's foreign policy orientation and major decisions. Language rights would be allowed at that local level. And so uh, that agreement never got implemented. And so part of Russia's story uh, in the lead up to the to the war this past February uh, was that Ukraine refused to implement the Minsk agreements uh, that they had signed on to and which had been uh, endorsed uh, by the Security Council of the United Nations. And their failure to do that meant that Russia needed to impose uh, those Minsk agreements uh, through force on Ukraine. The four areas that were just annexed in October, Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia, and Kyrgyzstan, are those the, the areas that were covered by the Minsk Accords that were that was that were never implemented is that is that is that the territory that was just annexed or is that different? This is territory that was just annexed. So it was Donetsk, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk uh, were covered in the Minsk Accords, but the Minsk Accords were supposed to be a general shift in the Ukrainian constitution to allow for regional uh, regional autonomy and also a regional say. Uh, in Ukraine's foreign policy. And so in a sense, yes, everything was included, but but those really were about uh, the Donbass. This is more uh, in the in the vein of, you know, including Zaporizhia and Kherson. And I think had they managed to seize those territories, it would have occlu- included all of Ukrainian territory uh, all the way to the Romanian border uh, to, through Odessa. Um, these are areas that they see as historically Russian. Uh, and so part of the claim is uh, we are, you know, we, Russia, are are gathering in the Russian people. Uh, and these are o- have always been legitimately uh, part of the Russian state. They were just illegitimately under the control of Ukraine for the last 30 years uh, in the post-Soviet period. But um, we're bringing them back. If you are just an average news consumer and you're reading this as it happens, it sounds as though Putin simply wants to chip away at Ukraine until there's no Ukraine left, as you said, and that his rationale all along the way will be that this region or that region of Ukraine identifies more with Russia and really wants to be a part of Russia. So I guess the question is, is that an oversimplification? And then also, are there other areas in former Soviet states that he might also consider truly Russian? Uh, yes, there are many areas <laughs> in the former Soviet states that he would also consider to be truly Russian. And so, you know, depending on how you define Russia, uh, it could include all the territory of the former Soviet Union and large parts of Poland. Uh, and the, and so 
you know, the Russian Empire was a very large entity. Uh, and so if he defines it in kind of an ethnic Russian terms, they're sort of like all of the East Slavs are Russians, which includes the Ukrainians, the Belarusians, and the Russians. Um, that also would pull in most of northern Kazakhstan, uh, which is also heavily Slavic, uh, heavily Russian, um, and, uh, and Belarus and, 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 uh, and Ukraine. And so just defining Russia in that way is extremely threatening and destabilizing uh, to the other countries in the region. And you see Kazakhstan also reacted very warily um, to, uh, to, that, to that Russian narrative uh, that, that Putin was putting out at the onset of the invasion. But you know, Putin has also been talking about Russia as a, as a multilinguistic, multi-faith entity lately. And so then if that's how you define Russia, you know, Tajikistan is Russia. Kyrgyzstan is Russia. Russia is just this idea and, you know, heavily influenced by, you know, where Russia used to be uh, at the peak of its territorial control. Uh, you know, then we're really talking about uh, quite a lot of territory. So we could definitely talk for a lot longer about Ukraine conflict. I want to move to the South Caucasus. Armenia and Azerbaijan have a long history of clashes over the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region. How has post-Soviet Russia influenced this region since 1991? And has the war in Ukraine impacted or even kind of allowed the recent fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan to break out? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and Russia's played a huge role in that region uh, since 1991. And, you know, part of, you know, the, the challenging of those post-Soviet boundaries began at the end of the Soviet Union with uh, Armenians challenging the boundaries of the Armenian Soviet Socialist Republic and trying to claim Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, and that the people of Nagorno-Karabakh, who were majority Armenian, uh, it was an autonomous region within the neighboring Republic of Azerbaijan wanting to become part of a, a greater Armenian Republic. And so in some ways, we've we've seen these kind of nationalist tensions and, and sort of chafing at those post-Soviet boundaries all the way back to the uh, early 1990s in this region. Uh, and Russia in the post-Soviet period played a role of kind of stabilizing the de facto boundaries uh, that came about as a result of the Armenian-Azerbaijani uh, wars uh, in, the, in the late 80s and 90s. And so Russia has kind of been playing the role of uh, guarantor uh, of uh, Karabakh uh, as, a, as an Armenian enclave, autonomous Armenian enclave, within Azerbaijan formally, but obviously connected very much uh, to Armenia, Russia kind of switched sides uh, and developed a better relationship with Azerbaijan uh, and so ceased to play that guarantor role, uh, which is why we had uh, the war uh, of, uh, of a, I guess, a year and a half ago now, almost two years ago, uh, where, uh, where Azerbaijan took back uh, much of Karabakh by force uh, and was defeating the, the, uh, the Armenian forces in Karabakh in some sense with a Russian blessing, uh, it seemed. And so Russia put the brakes on that process uh, and sort of 
tried to reestablish uh, its role as a kind of defender of Armenia uh, in the region. But the problem is that Russia is not in a position to guarantor, as a guarantor of anything. In other words, it can't even guarantee the, the defense of Donetsk and Luhansk uh, in Ukraine uh, against the Ukrainian military. And so uh, now that's really, you know, to the extent that Russia sort of enforced the de facto uh, boundary lines uh, in the South Caucasus, uh, the removal of Russia from that role, and in particular, the active role of Turkey in undermining those de facto boundaries in concert with Azerbaijan, has meant that we've seen a lot of movement uh, in the South Caucasus now. So if Russia was kind of like a, you know, stabilizing force uh, for about 30 years in the post-Soviet period. And it was using its military power and capability to kind of maintain the de facto borders that had emerged in the wake of the Soviet Union. Now that Russia has sort of flipped a switch uh, and really shifted its perception of the borders in the region and kind of dissolved them uh, in favor of a broader Russian imperial concept, it's no longer playing that stabilizing role. It is now the revisionist power. It is destabilizing. And other powers are also seeking to revise those borders now that Russia is no longer in a position to sustain them. Keith Darden, it's time to take five. This is when you, our guest, get to daydream out loud and reorder the world as you'd like it to be by single-handedly instituting five policies or practices that would change the world for the better. We're talking about border conflicts. This is obviously not an exact science, but what five policies or procedures would you enact to create and settle borders more effectively? So... Scholars of international relations talk about something called the territorial integrity norm uh, that has existed since 1945, which is basically the idea that you should not mess with borders and that under no circumstances should borders ever be changed by force. And if they are changed by force, the international community should react and under no circumstances accept the legitimacy of those border changes. Uh, And so there you know, so I guess my first policy would be a change of principle to where we accept that there are conditions under which the boundaries of states should change other than self-determination and secession, right? Because we did that with Kosovo, we did that with some other cases, but that there might be other reasons uh, that the international community should not have a fixation on preserving existing territorial boundaries. We don't want to go back to the sort of the bad old days of territorial conquest, uh, where every boundary change is accepted as legitimate and that, you know, you rule essentially by right of conquest, which is actually how many of the world's boundaries came to be. Uh, So I would say we could create a kind of arbitration court. uh, Much as, you know, the League of Nations used to do these kinds of boundary arbitration. And I think we could possibly get UN Security Council members to commit to supporting a binding arbitration court uh, for some of these territorial disputes. But I think that you could possibly have, you know, sort of cases put forward about how a boundary might be revised in a way that would enhance stability and the interests of peace, uh, while taking into account that 
maybe we we shouldn't be stuck with these boundaries that we simply inherited and that don't necessarily serve a logical purpose and might make governance actually difficult. In addition to an arbitration court, uh, a binding arbitration court, uh, I would say that we should have a kind of time period after which we just recognize boundary changes, regardless of how they came about there. So I would say maybe a 20 year uh, uh, time frame is a reasonable one, but that, you know, after let's say two or three decades, uh, we just accept that the boundary has changed uh, and we move on. One way to, to settle borders uh, that might work is just to make them less significant. Uh, and this was always the hope of the liberal internationalists, uh, is that if you allow free movement of people across borders, free movement of goods, then the existence of the border uh, doesn't really matter uh, as much. And that can be a, a good thing. In other words, uh, it's sometimes when you try to harden those borders and make them more real, uh, that uh, their significance is increased and the sort of lack of functionality of them, the tensions that come from drawing that particular line in the sand or the forest uh, or the field uh, really comes to the fore. And so, so I do think kind of doing what we can to generally liberalize uh, and make the differences uh, between states uh, less significant and the sort of softening of those borders uh, will probably reduce the tension around those borders and, and hopefully lead to fewer border clashes. Thank you. Continuing our lightning tour of the region in Central Asia, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan have disputed their shared border since it was established, and it sounds like swaths of it are undemarcated. With both of these nations allied to Russia, how has the war in Ukraine affected them, and do you think their recent border clashes are influenced by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, or is it just that there's just a vacuum and, and weird things are happening? What's going on there? I do think that this, like the South Caucasus, you know, Russia played a, an important stabilizing role in that region. Russia has bases in both Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. Historically, the base in Tajikistan uh, has been much more important. Uh, that, was, that was, you know, they control essentially the, the Tajik border uh, with Afghanistan. With, that's basically manned by Russian, Russian troops. Um, but if Russia is preoccupied uh, and shown to be incapable militarily uh, of intervening effectively in local conflicts, uh, then that stabilizing force for the borders in the region breaks down. And so the, you know, obviously the, all of the Soviet borders were arbitrary. The ones in the Fergana Valley of Central Asia were especially arbitrary. In other words, these boundaries were largely just determined uh, as a, you know, if you look at the Fergana Valley and the borders of Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan, it's kind of a swirl. Um, and it really looks gerrymandered. Uh, and that's because it was. In other words, it was basically designed so every, all three of those republics got a piece of the fertile, productive, historically important Fergana Valley, 
and that that valley itself was divided up and not in a single center of power. So it was partly a way for the Soviets to deal with what had historically been an Islamic center of power in Central Asia by dividing it among these three republics. But it was also sort of a reward, you know, giving each of these three republics a piece of that pie. But the boundaries, you know, the borders themselves, you know, uh, actually turning those into hard borders that are monitored and where passports are checked um, is very inconvenient uh, because it is really a single valley uh, that is very much tied together in terms of water, in terms of agricultural usage, in terms of trade, in terms of uh, religious pilgrimage. There's some very important religious sites there. And so... uh, if that opens up where some of the countries in the region start to try to shift that gerrymander, in other words, to get more of the Fergana Valley than that they were uh, given by the USSR, um, we're really going to have some significant problems in the region. People thought this was going to happen in the 1990s, that Central Asia would erupt uh, in warfare. Uh, but I think that Russia has played a very good mediating role there, and they're no longer in a position to play that role. And so we might continue to see instability in the in the Fergana Valley in particular. And I am wondering, we talked about the fact that Russia would be distracted right now, obviously. We've passed the 30th anniversary of the Soviet Union's dissolution last year. You talked about people who were, were born on and or around that time who know nothing but the world as it was post-Soviet Union, post-Cold War. And then you have leaders who remember that time, some perhaps more fondly than others. So I, I do wonder if there's anything to do with the timing um, of, of, of generational shifts of power, of people trying to hang on to things or reclaim things. Basically, why do you think all of this is happening now in these post-Soviet states? Is it, is it really just as simple as Russia invaded Ukraine and now just sort of chaos is breaking out because they're not mediating or is something else going on? I do think that it is partly Russia opening that Pandora's box in 2014. As I said, sort of you know, Russia was the guarantor of these boundaries, and then it itself basically uh, decided that those boundaries were not legitimate and were open to revision. And so that opens up uh, all of the parts of Eurasia to revision. And so, and then, so there's one part which is initiated by Russia. And, you know, we, we could see this really beginning in 2014, that it was going to just be a lot more difficult and a lot more costly to sustain the territorial settlement that took place in 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union, which is those Union Republic boundaries. That was just, there were just going to be a lot of pressures uh, to revise those boundaries through force. But the other part of it is that Russia has been shown to be weaker than anyone thought and less capable than anyone thought. Uh, and so that's opened up neighbors, uh, you know, Turkey, but also um, also post-Soviet states, you know, to be a little bit riskier uh, and more, uh, you know, having their own sort of regional power ambitions that they seek to realize through force. And so I think, you know, Tajikistan trying to uh, move the border posts a little bit deeper into Kyrgyzstan, uh, you know, that's that has to do with, you know, 
struggles within the Tajik elite and trying to claim new territories and, you know, distract from other problems associated with Tajik politics, right? So there, you know, once you don't have that uh, kind of the, the blanket of Russia maintaining the territory uh, and the boundaries in the region, there can be lots of local motivations uh, that will lead to conflict uh, as, as, as different actors start to chip away uh, at that post-Soviet settlement. Last question, uh, and it's unanswerable, but, you know, <laughs> give it a shot. What do you think the future looks like for this region, considering all the, the border clashes that are happening, the history of tension? What does it look like? And, and how much of the region's future lies with the future of Putin and however long he might remain in power? I think that, you know, we had a good run with those post-Soviet boundaries. They were, they were never particularly um, functional, uh, you know, as, as, as states. Uh, and it, for the most part, uh, even monitoring and controlling those boundaries was more than a lot of these states could handle uh, financially. And so I, you know, all post-imperial boundaries are arbitrary to some extent, right? None of the, you know, very few of the boundaries in, in, in Africa or Latin America uh, are, are meaningful in the sense that they track on the demog- underlying demography or necessarily the, um, like the geography of those regions. Uh, but I think in this region, uh, there's much more appetite for revision and much less ability of the international community to kind of close that Pandora's box again, uh, that even if Putin dies, there will be other Russian leaders that come to the fore who also seek to uh, rejoin parts of Ukraine with Russia. That I think now that we're kind of on a, you know, we've, we've sort of gone down the slope uh, uh, towards territorial revision in this region. And I don't think we're coming back from it. I actually expect that we're going to have more border clashes and we're going to have more involvement from other regional powers, uh, China, Iran, uh, Pakistan, uh, Turkey, first and foremost. Uh, and we're, we're going to be seeing a lot more of what we've, what we've seen in the last two years. Keith Darden, thank you for joining Big World to discuss borders and conflicts in Eurasia. It's been great to speak with you. I learned a lot. Thank you. Thanks. Big World is a production of the School of International Service at American University. Our podcast is available on our website, on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. If you leave us a good rating or review, we'll be like a Thanksgiving potluck where you thought no one brought the green bean casserole with the crunchy onions on top, but then you see that someone did. Our theme music is It Was Just Cold by Andrew Codeman. Until next time.